Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello, welcome to Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Today, we're looking at identification. I wonder how many people have looked at all my life and never seen. When the novelist John Steinbeck wrote these words, he wasn't thinking about vulnerability, but his words are really apt. Being able to see a person, to grasp their situation, and see their vulnerability is far from simple. Every consumer is different. Their cues, clues, and signs of vulnerability will differ too. And identification is also no longer just about voice-to-voice or face-to-face settings. It also includes digital channels, in-app chat, and transaction data. So how do we identify someone who is vulnerable to harm? How do we realistically do this across all our channels? And once we've done this, how do we make the move from identification to conversation? To help us grapple with these questions, we're joined by Laura Tuff. Laura is currently Head of Vulnerability, Accessibility and Inclusion at Nationwide and was previously Head of Customers in Vulnerable Circumstances at Barclays. Mark Fiander. Mark leads on uh, customer experience at Green, uh, Gain Credit, formerly Global Analytics, is a graduate of our Vulnerability Academy and is someone with a deep interest in data and digital. Dr. Elizabeth Blakelock, Elizabeth is Principal Policy Manager for Energy at Citizens Advice, is a current Vulnerability Academy member and has promised us an outsider's view on this uh, financial services debate. And Dan Clark, Dan is a specialist in vulnerability at Monzo. And after his appearance on our first podcast and identification back in 2019, was our first ever panelist to ever be sent fan mail. Uh, And Dan, I didn't pass that on, not out of professional jealousy, but just to keep your feet grounded and very much uh, on on planet Earth. And of course, we're also joined live by our audience. Uh, We'll be taking uh, their questions throughout. And if you want to submit a question, you can do that via the question box. So I want us to get straight to the heart of the matter here. And Laura, I'll turn to you first. Um, What are we actually trying to identify and for what purpose? Sure. Hi, Chris. Thanks for for having me on the panel. I'm really excited to to be here today. Um, If you don't mind, I'm going to take the second part of that question first and answer for for what purpose. Um, And for that, it really draws back to what the FCA is is trying to achieve for for customers in vulnerable circumstances through its work, which is namely to to prevent detriment and ensure that a customer with different or additional needs in a particular interaction with their bank receives an outcome at least as good as a customer without those needs. Um, So I think that's always really important to remember is kind of why are we doing this and it's to to prevent detriment ensure those good outcomes Um, and then in terms of what we're trying to identify um, so in that moment of servicing I guess it would be any indicators of of possible vulnerability that could give rise to those different or additional servicing needs so be that from what the customer tells us directly um, or from what is clear indirectly from what the customer says or how they behave um, or it could also be a previously disclosed vulnerability related servicing need that's been captured on the firm system in a previous interaction um, there's obviously also the in advance piece sort of in the design of propositions and, and services so what vulnerability related needs might be inherent in your target market or customer base um, for that product and therefore how do you reduce that risk of detriment by um, inclusive design designing out the risk um, 
So yeah, I think in seeking to identify vulnerability, it's important to remember that who is vulnerable and to what also varies by the thing they're trying to do. It's not it's not one size fits all. Um, yeah, so I guess that's that would be my starting point. Wow, that's a lot of information in there. That's fantastic. So it's kind of um, uh, the vulnerable to what, to what harm, and for the purpose of preventing that harm. So Mark, you were listening there. Same question. What, what is the point of identification from your perspective? I mean, I think, of course, we are trying to identify people that are at risk of harm. Um, but I maybe would refine that a little and say, um, really, what we're trying to do is identify people that need a different customer treatment. Um, it's all too easy to get pulled down a route, especially in the kind of digital environment of identifying people that may be vulnerable and thinking that that means they need to immediately be put through to a specialist team. Actually, I think if they're just wanting to check a balance, for example, that is an exchange that uh, could be done with a chatbot um, perfectly satisfactorily for some people who are vulnerable. Um, and in fact, they might prefer that to a phone call. So for me, um, we're trying to identify those people where by applying additional or different resource, uh, we can make a positive difference. And that, of course, includes protecting them from harm. So for Mark, there is it's, it's the relevancy aspect, uh, which is key and uh, something we'll, we'll, we'll come back to uh, later on. So, Dan, you've heard Laura and Mark. What's the uh, Monzo take? I'd like to build on the relevancy aspect. For me, I'm really keen on identifying barriers, more less so people, more barriers. What are the things that are very specifically in the way of that person banking? managing their finances in the exact same way as everyone else. And then once we found them, we can remove them. And I think perhaps to move forward a little bit already, I think the best way to do that is to have human beings delivering a very human service, to have highly trained people with time, energy and empathy who can talk to the people, figure out what those barriers are, and then do everything they can to work with the rest of the business to pull them apart. Elizabeth, you, you work in a, a, a different sector. How does this look to you? Well, I have to say that I think that the energy sector can learn a great deal um, from financial services, particularly they're hearing about the importance of time, energy and empathy. What an excellent set of cornerstones for identification and supporting consumers in vulnerable circumstances. I think I'd like as a consumer advocate to build on the idea of thinking about prevention of harm um, to the idea that by identifying someone's needs and responding to them, you're not only able to prevent harm, you're also able to review your processes and the training for your people to make sure that you're not the cause of harm that it's not your tone in your letters, that it's not the, the training that you've given your people around prompting of payments, that's actually the cause of harm, particularly to people with challenges with their mental health. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to uh, pick up on that, Elizabeth. I'm gonna go back to everyone and uh, this, this issue around relevancy. Laura touched on it uh, in terms of kind of uh, the prevention of harm. Mark touched on it, the, the different treatment uh, that people may need. Dan, you 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 raise the issue here of kind of, you know, when it needs that personal touch. So you know, everyone, here, how do we, how does staff draw the line between what's relevant to identify and what's irrelevant? 
So I can um, take a shot at that if you want. I think it, it comes back to what's what's the need in the moment of the financial services interaction that they're having, if we're talking specifically about this sector, um, because, you know, we have the FCA's um, fantastic insight from the Consumer Life Survey saying that sort of approximately 50% of the population could have um, something going on in their lives at any one time that could make them more susceptible to that, that kind of harm. But that isn't an automatic translation that all 50% are vulnerable in every interaction with their financial service provider every time because it's, there's such a wide range of interactions. It's a relationship rather than a binary service pre uh, provision with the financial services provider. So I do think that's absolutely key. You could have someone who, and I think this was um, what Mark was saying a bit, who they might be pretty vulnerable at risk of harm in sort of in a conversation around their arrears, for example, and therefore need additional support because there's additional needs in that type of interaction. But if they're then, um, you know, away from that conversation with, say, the collections and recoveries department and they're just in a branch or online in a digital channel making a day to day transaction, that there isn't a different or additional need there necessarily. Yeah. And so it really is um, about that relevancy. And, and I think that's what makes it kind of all the more complex because it's it is so nuanced and it has to be considered in every journey or every interaction that the customer has that's interesting so we've got that relevancy aspect i wasn't sure if it was dan or mark that wanted to come in yeah i, I think for me i think what we have to deal with is both your staff and the firms because the firm has a personality as well but the their fear and anxiety around vulnerable people i think that it's certainly been my experience and I'm, I'm sure it's been everyone's that when interacting with vulnerable people if you're not that specialist there's, there's this kind of very natural am I going to do the right thing here have I done ticked all the right boxes have I spoke have I spoken to them in the right way am I taking all the right actions there's if you see somebody marked as vulnerable there's a it can cause this explosion of fear and I think that what we can do is empower both frontline staff and the business as Mark was saying make sure that we do use things like chatbots at the appropriate moments to make sure that that actually vulnerable people are getting the same level of service everywhere else. They're just getting that little bit more at the exact moment they need it. And we, if we don't do that, the risk is that, as I've seen, as I'm sure, to be honest, as I'm sure everyone's seen, we end up getting vulnerable people stuck in queues waiting for specialists to do very simple things. Can I just come in there on that relevance point? I think part of the, the reason for that long pause at the beginning there, Chris, might have been because it's really difficult to make a judgment and you are there judging what's irrelevant in an interaction. Um, and one of the things that can really help close that gap is, is building on that empathy point and making sure that it is a very human interaction or it feels like a very human interaction. That's, you know, just to to build on that point there, that doesn't necessarily mean a long conversation with a person in that moment that might not be responding to the needs, but that it is a, a that the process has been tested about the, the human and empathetic tone of those interactions. Mm, it's, it's very interesting that the FCA don't actually use the term empathy. They, they seem to use mm. the term now sympathy, which is one to pick up on. So this relevancy aspect, and we're going to drill down to this. Uh, we'll touch on the uh, the bots versus people, uh, the transactional versus the deeper level of treatment and help. And we'll look at how we try to prevent harm. And by harm, I think we're, we're meaning here things ranging from disadvantage, 
uh, inconvenience, loss, right through to actual physical harm that a person may be at risk of. So again, that's a spectrum in itself. But let's go a bit deeper now, if that's okay. I want to look at something now. We've got this overview of kind of identification. I want to look at something that's usually left to the very end when it comes to discussions and identification, and that's uh, digital customer journeys. And I'm not talking here about transaction data or in-app chat, we'll come to that shortly. Instead, this is about, uh, for example, an online credit application journey, or logging into an online uh, portal or account, or asking for an overdraft uh, over, over a web portal, the journey itself. Now, Mark, could you pick a digital customer journey for us and tell us, how do we identify vulnerability during this? What are you looking for and how do you look for it? At Gain Credit, we do all of our lending online. Um, so if we take the journey of applying for credit uh, through digital, through website or through a mobile phone, um, there's multiple data points that are available. So clearly the customer will fill in an application form and from that you might see, for example, that they've applied for credit a few days before, but with different salary details. Um, you'll also have their credit report and that might indicate past difficulties. And these are, I suppose, criteria that have been used in the past as indicators of credit risk. Um, you can equally uh, see them as potentially indicating a vulnerability. Um, there's also behavioral indicators. Um, and they might lead firms to question if somebody is vulnerable. For example, if a customer is taking significantly longer than normal to progress through the journey, um, if they are repeatedly watching explainer videos um, trying to understand the product, um, or if they're getting details such as their address wrong multiple times. Um, again, these could be indicators of potential vulnerable, uh, vulnerability. Um, mm. That said, the person might just be multitasking or have distractions in the background. So it's it's important not to assume. Um, as you say, there are lots of indicators from transactional data. That's something that we've been using uh, for a couple of years. Um, so in terms of the how, though, I think um, some indicators are easy to classify. And in effect, the response to those indicators can be had how hard coded into the journey. Um, there might be others which are more subtle and they might play into a model um, so that if there's enough indicators are seen, that might um, raise a flag. Um, however, you are now starting to see machine learning come into place. And by that, I mean um, looking at those people who declare themselves to be vulnerable or who you find out later for sure are vulnerable um, and letting the technology look back at their behavior through the journey to help identify others through flags that might be um, not necessarily intuitive to us. Um, but I think that's still very much in its mm. infancy. Um, Mark, is this, is this happening? Is this a science fact or science fiction? Is this something that people are talking about is going to happen, looking at behaviorals during the online application? Uh, or is it, is, is, is it something that kind of um, is, is, is actually taking place? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think it, well, it is happening now. Some of those uh, behavioral pieces, I think, have, have been around for quite a long time and used in um, kind of credit risk underwriting. And a lot of, a lot of the, the, the technology that was looking at there to try to identify the risk of somebody and whether they would pay back or not um, can quite easily be shifted into looking for vulnerable people. I think mm. um, transactional data, um, maybe we'll come on to that, again, um, used um, 
for the vast majority of our customers now, we will use open banking to look at their transactional data. And there's lots of flags in there. Mm. Okay. Well, we'll come back to some of this, Mark. But Dan and Laura, I'll, I'll start with Dan. S- same question. Can you pick a customer journey and tell us how we can identify vulnerability during it? The interesting thing about Monzo is that we're known for these kind of slick, very quick, very intuitive digital journeys. Signing up is very easy. Logging into the app is very easy. Getting a loan is very easy. Putting all your money into a fixed term savings spot for a year is very easy. Getting a high value loan is is very easy. These things are really, really straightforward to do. And for me, the the kind of data that Mark's talking about, the kind of information that we're going to get from some of the systems that have been around for a while, some of the newer systems that are developing at the moment, my perhaps fear is that they're always going to be a bit of a blunt instrument. Um, my my feeling is that what firms need is well-placed disclosure environments at multiple points in that journey. Because like, the, the irony of these really slick journeys is that, that they're designed to let customers move, like, I don't know, relieve pressure, like move through the system really, really easily. But I think a vulnerable person is building pressure at each moment. So we need the right pressure valve. We need, I think that like the vulnerability is like building up like steam at every stage of the journey. There's an increased risk that we're not treating the vulnerable person in the right way. And so it's on us to find the appropriate way to relieve that pressure or expose and the customers in difficulty and so are the firm. And I think the right way to do that is to get disclosure environments at the right point in each journey that pulls the customer out of the digital journey and into a conversation with a human being that can kind of that can grab the information that can say we've seen this how about you and I talk about it and then we can move forward if we need to okay so um so in contrast to what Mark was talking about Mike was talking about um uh, data items uh that are generated by our interaction or from external sources we're talking here um Dan about the, the journey is is, is 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 the same as it would be pretty much mm. for, for anybody, but you build in these uh, points uh, where people can disclose and share their vulnerable situation with the firm. So this is about self-identification. Absolutely, but it, it's not 100% about self-identification because the way in which we, uh, in essence, pitch these self-disclosures is should be designed to bring about and elicit these disclosures. So it's not just putting the onus entirely on the customer to hold their hands up in essence and say, hi, I'm vulnerable. It's making sure that we're encouraging it in the right way. Yeah, okay. So to those listening, if you if you uh, don't do it now, but kind of uh, if you Google share of us Monzo, I think that's the feature there, Dan, isn't it, that you're talking about, uh, the, the share of us mechanism. Lovely. Yeah. Okay, we'll come, we'll come back to that. But Laura, you're listening there as well. Customer journeys. Dan's talked about disclosure environments. Uh, Mark's talked about some of the data that's generated and using that. What's, what's your take in terms of a customer journey? So, so I think what's become pretty clear in the conversation is there's many different ways you could do this. And I don't, it is still an evolving field. I don't think there is a sort of developed model of this is the perfect way to do this in digital journeys yet. So yes, absolutely. The types of you know credit risk scoring and, and transactional analysis that Mark talked about is, is an ability to pick up one type of indicator. Giving the opportunity to self-disclose in within that journey is, is also another way. But I think quite often what you might find is some people who have a vulnerability and don't want to disclose it, they're doing this journey in 
the digital environment precisely because they don't want to disclose it because say take a credit um, application journey for example they need that credit they may know it's not the right thing for them if they sort of step back from the heat of the moment of the situation that they're in but they're going online because they think there's a greater chance of it getting through in that sort of a channel than there is in a, in a sort of mediated channel um, and then there's the other element of things that can be looked at around sort of keystroke behaviours and hover times and that kind of thing, those sorts of behaviours in, in a digital channel, which could be an indicator that there is some sort of additional need there. But, you know, as Mark said, there's a quite high risk of false positives there because it could simply be the person is distracted or multitasking. You know, I know that with two small children in my life, I never get anything done end to end without interruption. So, so you know, it could you could be picking up false positives. So I think it's what do you then do with an indicator that makes you think there could be some vulnerability here how do you respond to that what do you use that for in a way that doesn't assume vulnerability but still helps get the customer to to the right kind of support if they need and this is where and I said this is still an emerging field I'm not sitting here saying Nationwide has these journeys live and they're perfect but you know could 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 you look at, okay, you pick up something that's a bit different to how you might expect a consumer to travel through that journey and use that just to nudge them into a slightly mm. different journey. So not a completely different one, but a, a slight variation to the main journey that, for example, includes additional prompts to check their mm. understanding or a bit more friction to just check they definitely want to go through with the transaction. Or, mm. you know, if you are really concerned, that option to push them into a mediated channel that, that others have talked about. But but it really does need to be done sensitively in this mm. sort of environment because you're picking up on things that a customer hasn't directly disclosed to you themselves. Okay. Let's um same question to you then, Laura, as uh, I'll put to Mark. Is this um science fact or science fiction? Is this is this happening? The so let's put aside the financial indicators because they're a bit more established, but the behavioural cues during a journey. Is is this actually happening right now? Um, I would say it's somewhere in between. It's in science, test and learn, if that's a genre. Mm, I'm not yeah. sure it is, but <laughs> poor analogy. Um, so we, we, we've been talking to people where you know, you've got teams of behavioural scientists working with data analysts and tech whiz kids to see what you can you can learn um, and whether that might be an indicator of vulnerability. Um, but as far as I'm aware, it's still relatively in its, its infancy. And you, you know, before you put something like that live at scale, you need to know it's mm. robust and that its sort of accuracy is, is high. So it is, from what I understand, in development, but not sort of in wide deployment within live customer journeys. Right. It's bubbling away in Cranky's lab. And, uh, you know, as, as consumers, we might we might see that soon. And um, before I go to Elizabeth, I just a question um, to the, the, the three kind of financial services people here. Um, we talked about kind of um, identifying vulnerability during the journey, um, a digital journey. Um, if it's identified, are we then just pushing everyone onto um, audio channel? Uh, we talked about kind of a mediated channel. Are people being popped into something completely different from the digital journey or can it be dealt with there and then? Mark, I'll let you come first and then uh, Dan and Laura, just sure. a very quick comment. Yeah, I think um, it's back to that relevance piece again. So it depends on what they are trying to achieve. Um, I think personally, I, you know, of course, probably the ideal situation is you send you you have a conversation with somebody who has huge empathy who's skilled as a vulnerable specialist um you know based in the uk um that and who you know it almost feels like you're just talking to your mum maybe that's the ideal 
actually that's very very difficult for firms to do and it's back to this relevancy point for me um, that the costs of doing that for everybody who you have got any indicator of vulnerability would be too high for the majority of businesses so by making sure that um, where it is necessary you can push them into those channels and you do have those specialists that can um, manage perhaps the most complex cases actually supplementing that with some of this technology and other channels such as chat or chat bots um, or indeed um, changing the customer journey as we've just talked about um, that is absolutely crucial to be able to balance the needs of the individual with the needs of the business mm, okay uh, dan what's your take on this um enthusiastic agreement with Mark to begin with, I think that the way that we we handle this is we simply have the trained specialist that, that he mentioned looking at the disclosures coming in and then they can quite quickly identify the right route for them to go down. Is it a complex enough case for them to take or can it be passed to a colleague on the on the front lines as it were or does it simply need the customer to be nudged back into the journey? Mm -hmm. um, but it's a human review and I think that seems to be working well at the moment. Laura, very quick comment from you. So I think it depends on what it is you've identified and therefore what a proportionate response is. So I don't, my gut instinct would be shoving every single person that you identify some sort of something going on with in a digital journey into a mediated channel is, is disproportionate and that you need to have a, you know, and this could be through user testing or customer research, but have a more nuanced understanding of, of what the different circumstances are that might cause certain behaviours and therefore what a proportionate response is and and um, and therefore what the best channel or type of interaction would be in response to that and it's not necessarily even audio channel even if you think some sort of human contact is needed it could it could be chat you know it's, it's mm. assuming that everyone would be happy to talk on the phone when they're not that might cause quite a lot of people to hang up or disengage because they're not comfortable in that channel. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Elizabeth, you, you've heard a lot there about some of this is science fiction, some of this is in the lab, some of this is happening. What can we learn from the energy sector here? What, what's happening there? Uh, well, there's three things really that I wanted to highlight to, to respond to, to what we've been talking about so far. So the first thing is around measuring outcomes. So when you're doing this really important work of, of saying, well, we've got this digital journey and we're going to make sure that it is as good as the journey that you would have had um, offline before, or if it's a if it's completely new product and um, making sure that it's not um, of detriment to that person for, for interacting in, in the way that, that, that the process has been set up. So measuring those outcomes really clearly so you have the evidence for, your, for yourself, but also for the regulator, um, that those outcomes are at least as positive. Um, and some of the um, real challenges that we're seeing in the energy sector at the moment is where um, online and digital journeys are really um, driven by a cost focus um, at the expense of the customer experience so um, the, the the reason for introducing a tool or a journey um, has not done that monitoring and um, because it's being driven by cost pressure and um, at the expense of the experience and the experience isn't being sufficiently monitored and um, the second thing I'd like to highlight is when we're talking about um, disclosure um, environments online. Our research um, as citizen device highlights it's really important for people to understand why they should disclose. So as well as thinking about the smoothness um, or, or additional prompts in, in terms of, of uh, giving people the opportunity to disclose 
a particular circumstance or, or, or a, a piece of detail about their health. And they're far more likely to do that if they understand what difference their service is going to have, what difference their journey is going to have, in a, and what positive support they're going to receive that's associated with that. So if you've got a very slick journey without um, uh, visibility of what support might be available, um, then that might mean that you're less likely to get disclosure. Um, and the the way that we know that in energy um, is because there's a there's a single um, register, a priority services register, it's called a PSR, um, and we've seen that um, that without firstly awareness of the register in the first place, but also secondly actually knowing what services are associated with you being on that register, people are much less um, likely to, to disclose their vulnerability. Thirdly and briefly, we've talked a lot about the digital potential within a journey within a firm, but what we haven't talked about is the digital potential of, um, of sharing information where relevant um, uh, to, to different organisations. Um, so we know that when we look at customer journeys, it can be absolutely transformative to have a, a single portal to, or a single interaction that, that can then make sure um, that multiple organisations are aware of that need. So the priority service register um, means that you will be, um, if you're on a dialysis a machine, for example, you'll be reconnected more quickly after a power cut. Um, you can also um, ask for a um, password so that anyone who is actually attending your home around a reconnection will have a password and you know that they are an appropriate person. That password will also be available to your metering agent. Um, and then your energy supplier can also have visibility of that need in their communications with you. If the process is running smoothly um, and, of course, with the appropriate consent, um, then all of those organizations can um, make sure their interactions with you um, respond to your needs. When I look at um, across different sectors in terms of, of identifying and then responding to needs, um, it seems to me that there's far more um, opportunity to, to use this digital potential um, to to share information in, in the same way as we've seen um, movement in the, the tell us once uh, for, of government around bereavement, of making sure that in a really difficult time in someone's life, um, that there is not a repeated requirement to self-identify. So I think there's an enormous potential um, for, for digital journeys in that space, as well as the um, interactions with a specific firm. Fantastic. So we've really started to open up uh, identification, its different dimensions. I'm going to take a, a few um, questions uh, from everyone uh, that's joining us uh, today. Um, uh, now, many of you, uh, Rachel and Dom, have flagged up GDPR, and you'll be delighted to hear that we've got a, a special on November the 4th on GDPR. So I'll, I'll park your questions until then. But um, Mark has asked and I'll, I'll put this one um, to to Laura um, do the panel think more could be done at point of sale and onboarding to tee the customer up for the ongoing journey around uh, disclosure of vulnerability or sharing uh, contact preferences or uh, additional uh, points of contact that they may have with a third party? Should we be not waiting for disclosure to be something that's uh, engaged with by the individual, but actually we're asking them from the very outset of the product? 
so I think, again, it comes back to what the customer circumstances are and what the needs are. So if there are some that are ongoing permanent needs, so for example, need for um, alternative formats in, for written communications, that kind of thing, then, then yes, absolutely, those sorts of things, it, it is appropriate to engage with at that onboarding stage. But you know, obviously, vulnerability can be permanent, can be temporary, can be fluctuating. So there'll be a lot of things that that you would never find out, you couldn't find out at that onboarding stage because it's not happening at that time, whatever it is that's going on in someone's life that is giving rise to those different or additional needs. And equally, it might be something that's not relevant in every, in that particular interaction that only you know becomes relevant later on. Um, so yes, absolutely, firms will always have to try and have skillful and needs-based um, conversations at that onboarding stage of a new product. But you also have to bear in mind sort of the length of some of these product holdings. You know, how long do we hold our mm. current accounts for? That, that your life and your circumstances circumstances will, will change or could have the potential to change significantly during that relationship. So I think it's there isn't a, a one size fits all answer to, to when is the right time to encourage disclosure of vulnerability. You know, it should be whenever is relevant. So yes, absolutely, you know, mm -hmm. skillful conversations at that onboarding stage, but but there needs to be other opportunities throughout. And as Elizabeth alluded to, there needs to be an understanding of what's the potential vulnerabilities and potential for detriment in the product and servicing journeys you're designing at that design point so you can kind of design out the risk of harm as well and then you know the more inclusively you design your journeys and products almost kind of the less the customer needs to disclose to you because what you're putting in front of them just meets their needs whatever mm. those needs are anyway whether that's through simple communication or so on Yes, no, absolutely. and it's the uh, 10th anniversary of the uh, Equality Act this year um, I think it was actually today it was brought into uh, into play, so maybe part of that onboarding could pick up on additional needs uh, under the the Equality Act. Um, the question for a, a quick one here from uh, Mark uh, from uh, Mosin, and it's how do we mitigate the risk of false positive negatives when identifying vulnerability in a digital journey? And it gives the example here of how do you differentiate between someone as a genuine mental capacity con concern over someone who just sped read the uh, terms or just clicked uh, and accept type behavior. How do we do, how do we deal with that? Um, it is difficult. And I mean, in, in that specific example, I guess you would, um, if somebody is one of those people that are speeding through, you will see that consistently. Um, now you might not see that with somebody um, who has uh, a mental capacity issue. What I would say is um, there, it, it's not necessarily a, binary switch. Um, so of course there are some things where um, absolutely you will say that customer needs some additional help and you will then vary the uh, treatment for that customer as you're going forward. There are others where you will take a number of indicators and together those indicators um, might, and, and this is where the outcome data was talked about earlier can be helpful, that might indicate that if you put enough of those together that that person is vulnerable. Um, what I would say is um, we shouldn't be afraid of approaching the customer um, about whether they have a vulnerability. And I'm not saying that you kind of, you know, get a call, they should get a call out of the blue asking if they're vulnerable. Um, but what you can do is put things there that can help them to self-identify um, through things, simple things like having explainer videos, which might then help you identify that and solve their problems. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're seeing a bit of a hierarchy here. We had Laura mention 
inclusive design to make sure that our platforms, our products, our services anticipate uh, potential vulnerability to certain types of harm and deal with that there and then so people don't have to disclose at all. It's built into the product or the service. We've then got the actual self-identification, the disclosure environment, as Dan has mentioned. And then we've also got the identification by staff and uh, through kind of data analytics uh, and, and other platforms. What I want to do now is I want to turn, and Dan, I'll come to you first on this. I want to explore how firms can identify vulnerability during conversations. Uh, we're going to include digital in this, but we'll also expand it to cover telephone and in-person conversations. And I really want to try and understand uh, whether the cues, the signal, signals, and the indicators differ according to the channel the customer is using. So Dan, Monza are an online bank. You have a telephone channel. I presume there's one phone somewhere, uh, but predominantly <laughs> customers communicate with you via chat. Can you just explain how this works and how you identify vulnerability when all you've got to go on are a series of chat messages? Absolutely. Yeah. So all of our chat staff are trained, of course, to spot signs of vulnerability in what the customer is saying to us. And then, as I said, we've got the specialists who are above. They're very adept. Uh, identifying even the most subtle signs of vulnerability. So everybody's looking for those incredibly clear indicators. I'm addicted to gambling. And then everybody is also looking for things that might be much, much, much more subtle. Like, I don't know, I, I, someone saying, I think I'm spending a little bit too much, but I'll be okay. And those, and the tone of voice that Monzo uses, which is generally a kind of more relaxed, um, more personal, more human tone of voice tends to elicit those more conversational beats that can bring that kind of thing out. So we spend a lot of time responding to clear indicators. And if we're talking in this context, if we're talking to someone in chat, we we may not have got that disclosure at those earlier points in the hierarchy that you described. So we may be at a point of friction. So we might get a very clear indicator because of that. But there is there is this quite surprising amount of subtlety that you get through chat. The the chat can be quite long, it can be quite complex. And so you need, as I mentioned earlier, you need that team who've got the time, there's no KPIs on their speed, and the training to look at the chat holistically with, with real attention. So I, um, an example, so I'm gonna change details to protect the person's privacy. The customer once got in touch saying that they'd like to set up a donation at the end of the day to a mental health charity with a scheduled payment could be quite a normal, straightforward thing to do by a chat. The frontline member of staff, something made them think that that was a little bit unusual, so it brought to the vulnerability specialists. And that expert then read all of their chat history. It, it went back to 2017 before responding. And they noted at several moments, the customer had mentioned feeling low, they'd mentioned disappointing people, and then they looked at their transaction data and they looked at, there were payment references to people with the same surname, with um, the text said goodbye. And so to cut a very long story short, that customer was planning suicide. The expert picked up the phone, spoke to them, and arranged for them to be contacted by an appropriate charity. So the, the, the key point here is that you've got to arrange your customer support teams to match the challenges of chat. You don't have visual cues. You don't have oral cues. You're, you're missing everything a human being almost always normally uses to understand the person in front of you. So you have to, you have to pay very close attention. The words that they're giving you. So you, the the human element is key, but the the technology is also key. The the ability there to read all of the chat history, uh, mm -hmm. the ability there to have that additional time 
so it, it's it's not the customer is on the end of the phone in in real time you've got that chat message you maybe have an additional element of time there as well but if i'm going to push you a bit further what you said mm. people pick up on something in the chat if we mm. can unpack that it's is it the way in which people uh, repeat things? What patterns, what things are you looking for in a chat that you wouldn't necessarily get through voice uh, voice communication? As I said, we've, we've got that luxury a lot of the time of a bit of a history. So there could be a change. It could be, a, another example might be, if you're talking to somebody who has a particular way of expressing themselves, and they've done that for several years, they might use lots of emojis, they might be very relaxed, they might, their they, they, general tone of voice is quite calm and quite friendly. Suddenly, you have somebody else, well, I've spoiled the story, suddenly you've got a whole new tone of voice come into the chat that's quite aggressive, that's quite intense, maybe they're using lots of capital letters. Maybe you've also noticed some large amounts of money go to somebody that this customer shares a joint account with. That might be an indicator that there is something, that, that somebody else is using their account, that there's some control going on there. They can respond to patterns. Mm. You can also respond to, and I'm not sure whether this is a peculiarly British thing, but sometimes customers will tell you something without telling you something. They will say, you'll be talking about, I don't know, a loan. And they might say something like, haha, I've, I've pissed all my money up the wall again. And that could be something that might be easy to just wander past face to face, but because you've got that, tiny bit of extra space you might look and see where that money has gone so you've got that that, that additional analytic mark you, you're listening in there mm. what are your thoughts on the strengths and challenges of using chat to identify vulnerability um i mean you do miss out on um some of the more subtle cues um that said i think there's there's a lot of work going on at the moment in semantics and um technology um, and, and that's hardly surprising because most of us have probably got some device in our home that will listen to us and try to work out actually what we mean um, from what it's heard. Um, I think there are some tools which are really, really easy for people to deploy. Um, so um, we built a, a, a kind of chat bot um, functionality in a small number of weeks um, using uh, Amazon Web Services, other providers are available. Um, but but as well as that, uh, not, not just um, for developing chatbots, but actually they have some really interesting technology, which again, people can deploy on a on a case by case basis. So um, there is not really any reason for somebody to talk to us about food, right? There's, mm -hmm. they, they should, like you shouldn't really mention it. So if, for example, one of the things we've tested is, if somebody mentions food while talking to a chatbot or in a chat, actually that can be immediately flagged up to somebody. Um, because unless they're saying, I can't afford food, um, we struggle to come up with scenarios where that's relevant. Mm. So there are some some technology, some in the kind of semantic space where actually you can deploy these tools um, relatively cheaply. And I guess you know that's one of the areas where we expect FinTech to explode. Mm. So this again is, is all work in, in development. So kind of Laura and Elizabeth, if you're listening in in there on this, uh, the strengths and the challenges of using uh, chat to identify vulnerability. So Laura, is this something that, uh, that you use or are you predominantly um, still using uh, the, the audio channel, the contact center route? 
Um, so we do have, have some chat capability, but with our sort of business model and our, our customer base um, for actual sort of conversational stuff, we are still more branch and, and telephony focused. Um, I've been listening absolutely fascinated because I think you know, we've, we've all heard that stat that only 7% of communication is verbal and you know, tone of voice counts for 38% and body language for 55 to take you up to that full 100%. And so the work that's going on to try and get more under the skin of that tone of voice and body language just from the words of a chat is is absolutely fascinating. Um, I think if I go back to your original question, Chris, you know, are we mm. looking at a completely different set of cues? I don't think it's necessarily completely different, but in telephony and in personal person channels, you have that progressive build as well because you do then pick up on the tone of voice and the, the body language, which are harder to mask if someone is trying to you know, cover up a vulnerability or cover up something that's that's going on um, when you have those either telephone or, or in-person channels. Mm. Well, Elizabeth. Yes, fascinating. A few things there. Um, so firstly, I think it's really important to acknowledge that well, just as we're thinking and talking about firms adapting, changing, introducing some of these new tools, the expectations are really shifting in terms of what the customer is saying, what they're doing, and how their behaviour or their articulation of their needs is being picked up. Um, and that change um, could take some some considerable time um, in terms of, of, of getting used to that and, and, and setting those expectations. So if we were together today, for example, maybe at a conference and we were a panel on a stage, you would have seen me clatter in with a walking stick and I've got some very large uh, noise cancelling headphones. Um, and you might be able to generalise from that that I've got some mobility challenges. Um, and perhaps if you're aware of, of some of the uh, symptoms around neurodivergence, you might be able to spot those noise cancelling headphones as, as, a, as a sign of that. Um, but you certainly wouldn't be able to see my mental health challenges. Um, and I think that they're equally as relevant in the way that I would um, think uh, about uh, vulnerability and, and certainly in terms of, of talking to a service provider. But over time, um, I have uh, learned the, the, the ways that I can and, and maybe even should disclose those things. So, for example, um, I know that if I don't tell my energy company um, that I can't access my meter, physically can't access my meter, um, then they will have expectations of me in terms of, of reading that meter and providing a read. And if I, if I don't tell them that I struggle to read a bill, um, then, then I won't be provided with services in terms of, of how that's set out. Um, and, and in terms of mental health, there's still no um, set of services that I would even know that I would receive. Um, and, and I this do see myself as a vulnerability specialist in the energy field. So I think it's really important that for, um, for this expectation setting piece, it, just as we as professionals are getting used to the, the opportunities and the risks around digital journeys, we acknowledge that that is going to be associated with a very different way of, of mm. talking to your service providers from the consumer perspective. Um, and that that time um, it, it linked up with the empathy is going to be really required. Um, now, a really important way of of managing that, managing that risk, but also of, of making sure those opportunities are taken up is back to this point around inclusive design and making sure that um, as, as these changes occur, um, that the lived experience of 
consumers in vulnerable circumstances is really central um, and that it isn't a, a, a particular set of uh, whizzy behavioural scientists, perhaps who have all come from the three same universities who, who were designing um, these processes. It's so important to have those experiences absolutely mm. central in that design. So do you think, just Elizabeth, just continuing on for this, I mean, I was surprised when I read the uh, the recently published FCA guidance for consultation, uh, where they said the guidance does not place obligations on firms to proactively identify individual consumers through staff interactions or the use of data analytics. Now, maybe that would change its guidance for consultation. But based on what you were saying there about what a firm may or may not know uh, about you, about what a firm may need to probe and find out a little bit more, w were you surprised by that? I was surprised by that, um, because especially because of the consistency uh, in, in across a much more uh, the 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 quantity of the guidance was was very supportive of the idea of doing really proactive quality assurance around interactions um, underpinned by excellent training. So I wonder if there's something there around um, the the regulatory space and and whether or not the um, regulator feels willing and able to to move to more legalistic um, interventions around. Um, obligations rather than needing um, acknowledging the importance of proactive identification. Um, I've also found it really interesting um, listening in the, um, the Vulnerability Academy discussions around how much of the guidance is um, or is not um, new intent, new regulatory intent. And I wonder if that comes back to, um, again, whether or not um, the regulator feels that it's um, Re restating or, or needing to be more specific um, around obligations when it feels that it is implicit in much of its guidance that there is an incredible importance around acting proactively. Mm. May I come in on that Chris? Yeah please do. Yeah. Um, I mean I think it's quite difficult in a way to um, tell people that they need to identify uh, vulnerable customers because I think very quickly you know, we've talked around that 50% of people maybe uh, are potentially vulnerable. Actually, in some areas of financial services, that might be 80, 90%. I think the risk is if you say to, so, to a firm, you have to identify proactively vulnerable customers, the risk is that they basically just say, well, that's virtually everybody. And then the, the, the challenge becomes that that is back to this relevance point again, that they the firm feels they have to then treat those customers in a particular way. Um, now, you know, maybe that means the entire journey gets made better. Um, the risk is that actually nothing really changes um, because there isn't an, then enough resource to focus on those that are truly vulnerable because you have this vast group of potentially false positives. Um, that said, from a firm's point of view, it is much easier to accommodate a vulnerable customer um, that you have identified at the outset rather than trying to deal with the repercussions if that customer has not been treated appropriately because of their vulnerability. So I would say it's difficult to dictate to firms that they should identify vulnerability, but you should expect them to both for their and their customers benefit.
Interesting. What one for us to Can come I come back in to? there on this yeah, proportion? Very quickly, please. Certainly yeah. driven a lot of activity and energy. Um, and that is when we include in, in our discussion of vulnerable consumers, um, people with um, young children, uh, bereavement, um, falling ill, having a mental health challenge, you really have to question whether or not you can say there's this minority group with a, a particular uh, different set of needs, or whether we're actually saying um, that almost everyone will at some point face one of these processes. So at design stage, you need to make sure you're not making um, uh, you're not making assumptions around a, a normal person and what a normal customer will do in a normal process, but instead to acknowledge that a lot of the experiences that we associate as vulnerable customer problems are in fact human experiences mm. that happen to us all. Absolutely. Right. We, I'm I, going to bring us down. I'm just going to I'm just going to move us on and maybe you could bring that point up. I just want because we've got this critical point, um, like Laura, in the debate and that that is kind of identification is clearly good. But moving from identification to conversation is 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 the real challenge. In other words, once you've observed a potential vulnerability, how do you get go about raising that with a customer. So, so, so Laura, uh, we'll, we'll come to you straight away. It's kind of, how do we move from identification to conversation? Um, so I think it has to be done incredibly carefully and sensitively because what, what I was going to say in relation to the last question in, in terms of has the FCA stepped back from a requirement for proactive identification? I, I think they have. I think it's a well-reasoned response because you were risking, if you put that obligation to proactively identify, you have you have the risk of, of false positives, but you also have the risk of probing where a customer doesn't want you to probe. This is something they don't want you to know. So have you overstepped the mark too big brotherish in identifying it? And you could even identify something about a customer that they don't even recognize in themselves yet. And therefore, you know, is 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 that the, you know, that identification, do you want that to come from your financial services provider? You know, given the full range of what's covered by those drivers of vulnerability and the things you could be recognizing if you put that obligation on firms, because, you know, I've had people pitch software to me that will pick up from someone's keystrokes the early stages of Parkinson's disease. Do you want your bank telling you that before your doctor? Right. Um, so so, so I, I feel kind of for those where they have recognized their vulnerability and are open to accepting help in response to it, then, you know, that the requirement for firms to pick up on that and respond to that is still there in the guidance. But that bit that would take you too far over the line, I think, has has been dialed down a bit from the, the previous iteration. So so that would be my, my take okay. there. But that so then Laura, is, Laura, Laura, then just to push you then on the, the um, identification to conversation, let me give you a hypothetical yeah. but hopefully plausible situation. I'm a firm. Uh, account transaction data tells me that a sizable number of my customers are spending in a way that's going to lead them going into collections in three months' time. I want to prevent that harm and detriment happening. Uh, I think I'll send them an email or a letter. What should I be doing here? Some of them may not realize, as you just said, that they're, that they're, they're vulnerable. How do I open this communication from a cold standing start? 
So I think you'd start perhaps a step before that and go, is email or letter the right communications method for, for this? And that comes back to so what is the call to action that you, you want to the, the customer to take um, off the back of that communication and then go, so what is the most effective um, communications channel for driving that response? So you'd need to do in customer research and testing to inform that depending on what your specific message and call to action was in response to this risk of of going into to collections there's some generic you know insight that people already know around email being least effective for engaging consumers on important topics because of the constant suspicion that any email communication is fake and mocked up mm -hmm. by fraudsters um that kind of thing so i think you need as it comes back to which is the comms method and channel that's most appropriate for the interaction you want to have with that customer and the call to action that, that they you want them to take and absolutely in the context of that example the risk of arrears i know from work that i did in a previous role in a previous firm of trying to identify um customers in early stages of, of financial stress that a lot of them really only did identify any sort of financial difficulty in their situation when things got really serious so either that you know there'd been a complete or significant fall in income or if it was just a gradual deterioration over time rather than a trigger like that they only recognized they were in difficulty when they started kind of bouncing off the limits of their account such as incurring unpaid transaction fees um on on bills that were going unpaid um rather than further upstream when they've got more headspace to actually change their behavior and prevent them from ending up in in collection so mm. so it is really hard and therefore you need to think again it comes back to where in that journey are they and at what point in that are you trying to contact them and what are they actually going to be open to is it actually you, you get the further upstream you go the less they're going to recognize that difficulty yeah. themselves so are you just trying to point them towards useful tools around budgeting or spending controls on, on a card and things they can put on that don't make them feel singled out but there feels like some relevant so that could be helpful or are they much further downstream in that journey where actually what you want the messages you're wanting to say can we speak to you and actually what you're wanting to do is explore forbearance options ahead of them crossing that line into to collections Lovely. There was so much we could ask. Um, I wanted to ask about would it change if it was gambling? Uh, if we were looking at transaction data, but I think we're going to have to recognise that this debate we've we've opened the box, and I think we're all wiser. Uh, whether we're clear on where it's going to go, I'm not entirely sure. But let's let's come back to this in a a future podcast. So we've reached the end, sadly. Um, if you want to know more uh, about the Money Advice Trust work on vulnerability, it's moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. If you'd like to hear more podcasts, including our podcast on inclusive design, search for Vulnerability Matters on your podcast provider. Uh, until the next time we meet, it just allows me to say thank you to our guests, uh, Laura Tuff, Mark Fiander, Dr. Elizabeth uh, Blakelock, and Dan Clark. And also thanks very much to yourself as well for listening. Until next time um see you again <laughs>